Hi, I'm Tyra G, your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners, fearsome and generous, humble and honest, in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. You know, here we dig deep and we come up strong. We bravely walk into places where tradition has taught us there are some things we just do not talk about, but not at this table. And no matter how hard judgment knocks, it can't come in. Beloved, we live beyond the wreckage here. Every week we experience, educate, encourage, and empower one another. We have a firm belief that everyone not only has a story, but everyone is a story. So we share aha moments and the stories that have been left in our pockets for too long. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. Each week, we start right where we are. The dress code is your authenticity, your inner awesome, and your belief that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. Frankly speaking with Tyra G is one of my most ambitious dreams. I thank God for every remembrance of you and your gifts of ideas, your encouragement and your presence. I can't do this without you. Thanks so much. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia. Cablecast on Cox and Verizon Files, Channel 37 and Comcast, Channel 28 in Reston. And we are webcasts worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Should you miss us, no worries. You can catch our archive, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. podcast, wherever you listen to your favorite. And you just feel like connecting with me offline, you know. Email me at tyra at tyragarlington.com. Thanks again for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. For six years now, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G has been telling thematic stories to touch the mind, the heart, and the spirit. They've been multicultural, intergenerational, educational, and inspirational. And they've been told by you, my cohorts, my listeners. Thank you so much. However, we're in the midst of an ongoing season of uncertainty, unrest, unnatural disasters, and unnecessary violence and death. We've all been touched by a fresh sense of fragility in ourselves and in our social systems. In order to survive and hopefully thrive, we must recognize we're on a journey, not a destination, a process, not an event. We're dynamic, yet we must learn to exhale. And depending on who you are, where you are, what you're doing, how you're doing, your perspective, or the lens through which you view life is formed. In other words, where you sit is where you stand. This week, I thought it would be both refreshing and educational to share the perspectives of two very special people who in many ways are different, but whose lives intersect in a special way. I shall begin with a series of quotes. 
excuse me, that those listeners of a certain age may recognize before I reveal the author. And so I began. If a man is to survive, he will have learned to take a delight in essential differences between men and between cultures. He will learn the differences in ideas and attitudes are a delight, a part of life's exciting variety, not something to fear. Sorry, I'm a little hoarse. A man either lives life as it happens to him, meets it head on, and licks it, or he turns his back on it and starts to wither away. Next quote. It is a struggle itself that is most important. We must strive to be more than we are. It does not matter that we will not reach our ultimate goal. The effort itself yields its own reward. Next quote. It isn't all over. Everything hasn't been invented. The human adventure is just beginning. Next quote. I think I'm going to give you some clues in this one. I handed them a script and they turned it down. It was too controversial. It talked about concepts like, who is God? The enterprise meets God in space. God is a life form, and I wanted to suggest that there are many, excuse me, there are many have been at one time in human being, in the human being, an alien entry, an early man believed to be God, and kept by those legends. But I also wanted to suggest that it might have had as much of the devil as it was God. After all, what kind of God would throw humans out of paradise for eating the fruit of a tree of knowledge? One of the Vulcans, second hint on board, in a very logical way says, if this is your God, he's not very impressive. He's got so many psychological problems. He's so insecure. He demands worship every seven days. He goes out and creates faulty human beings and then blames them for his own mistakes. He's a pretty pure, excuse me, pretty poor excuse for supreme being. Last clue. Star Trek was an attempt to say that humanity will reach maturity and wisdom on the day that it begins not just to tolerate but take a special delight in differences in ideas and differences in life forms if we cannot learn to actually enjoy these small differences to take a positive delight in those small differences between our own kind here on this planet then we do not deserve to go out into space and meet the diversity that is almost certainly out there. Reality is incredibly larger, infinitely more exciting than flesh and blood, excuse me, than the flesh and blood vehicle we travel in here. You have been immersed in the mind of Gene Rodenberry, Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. How many of you fans? Hmm had become fans and then addicted to the phenomenon of Star Trek. Raise your hands. I can see you. Just kidding. Did you know Star Trek was on NBC for only three seasons, 1966 to 1969? 
but it became one of the most popular brands in American entertainment history. The ratings were low, so it was goodbye Star Trek. But then, but then in 1986, nearly two decades after it entered syndication, A.C. Nielsen Company listed, ready for this? Star Trek, the original series, as the number one syndicated show. That same year, Roddenberry launched a second TV series, Star Trek The Next Generation, which immediately syndicated and became a ratings hit. And this is the part we need to remember. Or maybe not. I remember it. I was a fan. The Star Trek canon includes the original series, 11 spin-off television series, and a film franchise. Further adaptations also exist in several media. After the conclusion of the original series, the adventure of his characters continued in 22-episode Star Trek, the animated series, and a sixth film feature films. Okay, let's fast forward to today. Join my guest and me at the Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Tatum. Mr. Christopher Derrick has been here before. We ran out of time, and I dare say we may once again. But this week, we're going to do something a little different. Chris is going to produce this show, and I'm going to take notes. We're going to switch roles. Once he connects the dots between him and my introduction, he will share what it feels like to be immersed in our current entertainment industry struggles and whose outcome may change how we are entertained in the future. Chris's story is important because stories of black creators in Hollywood are harder and harder to see, to hear, to read. I'm handing Chris the mic now to share authentically and sometimes vulnerably what time it is on the clock of the entertainment industry. Now I'm going to sit back, Chris. The mic is yours. <laughs> okay, I am back. I am glad to be back. I know we didn't get enough time to talk about a couple key topics, but I didn't know you were going to have these quotes from Mr. Roddenberry. <laughs> it's very very interesting to hear his philosophy. I think that it's one of the things that draws so many people to the franchise. Yep. It is this idea of humanity is on a better course and that we can make the right strides to do that. And I feel that everybody who is involved on the the series I was in, Star Trek Picard, which recently had its uh, finale uh, just a few months ago. Um, it, it, I mean, you know, that's something that, that we all believe. We all believe there was this, uh, just there was this, you know, there was a better way to acceptance of difference and diversity and of culture of, of you know, of of people, of how they wish to express themselves. Yes. I I think that's one of the things, you know, that that we forget about so much with entertainment, but it was always there at the core of telling those Star Trek stories in terms of, like, how do we make sure that 
the people watching feel that they, uh, particularly now in this current climate and entertainment in politics and society, where we feel, like you said, it's uncertain, and people need something to feel very much that they understand something as to where we're going. And and that's sort of like the power of storytelling. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's why we have stories to tell, to let people so that, so, so that they can feel comfortable about, uh, you know, just where they are in the world, you know. And I think that I think that's something that we forget a lot. And I think that you know it's something that you um, sometimes even forget about as a creator. Yes. But you, but you have to. But when you step back and you go back to the to thirty the thirty thousand foot view and look back at your work. You know, at that moment when you're trying, when you're stuck at two in the morning trying to solve something, you think about how did this story, how does it impact, you know, the people around, the people who, who are going to watch it, mm-hmm. who are going to be, who are, who, who are, who, who are going to spend their attention on it. Chris, um, I want to, I want you to put a comma there because you neglected to tell what your relationship was to Star Trek. Yes. Well, so my relationship is I was a writer I on Star Trek Picard. <laughs> I started my career in television on that as a story as a staff writer, and then I reached story editor by the time that uh, that we finished the the season three of, of Star Trek Picard. I started on season two, so I have this. You know, I I I, I I'm excited. I was I, you know things that like I didn't think about the whole time when I was writing it. And a friend of mine had to, I wasn't writing anything, I was part of the, the, the team of writers. But a friend of mine told me this when it premiered recently. He said, You are now part of the canon. Yep. <laughs> you were there to help push the story along that people are always going to be turning to. And it's, and, and I was, and, and, I, and I didn't think about that at the time. I was too caught up in the, 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 the storytelling, what we were trying to do, what we were fighting. To, to achieve, and I did feel it to a degree in terms of when the episodes were airing, you know, like it was on Paramount Plus, and unlike a lot of the, the um, shows that come out on streaming, it wasn't all at once, and we did it one episode a week, uh-huh. and I, and so I remember feeling so humbled by the response online. I don't, I just like the, the people who has, that they said, this is one of the best Star Trek of the 21st century. That was one thing that I saved. I, I saved like a, a screenshot of someone saying this. Uh, but what, what, what really touched me was a lot of people would say, I was introduced to this, the Star Trek The Next Generation characters, which came out, like you said, in 86, 87. Mm-hmm. They said, I was introduced to this by my father. Or by you know, or you know, and he's he's passed away now, and and but but now watching this, I get to to to, to experience this moment that I had with him. Yeah. And there were so many people who said that that it was it was, and that was something that like I didn't expect, and I really really was just like I said, I was humbled, and I it, and it's something that allowed me to realize how far-reaching 
the storytelling is. The, 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 I mean, like Star Trek in general, because of, and it's got such a such an optimistic view of humanity going forward. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because it's cloaked in the science fiction, uh, science fiction genre, which a lot of times sort of shows us when humanity has run amok mm-hmm. because, it want, because it sort of wants to comment on where we are now, where we haven't run amok, but but we're in, but we're in strange states, and so it's interesting that Star Trek doesn't do that. Star Trek always points us as you know, here we are in a great place, and then they find ways to to you got to be really clever about how you find ways to comment on the now, and and that's the cool thing about Star Trek, is, you know, because we never were allowed to get that dark. Mm. And um, you know, like sometimes you pitch ideas, and they would say that's too dark for Star Trek. That's oh, that's good to know. I mean, seriously, that is a critical point. Yeah, you know, and you know, and and, you know, and and so, and therefore, we'd have to backtrack some stuff, and then and then figure out like something else. But but it was but it, it it wasn't a struggle. But it just it but it just was like there's. There's an ethos to that storytelling mm-hmm. that is beyond, and it's not necessarily. It's funny because the people who weren't saying that weren't the studio, weren't the network. It was the showrunner. It was the woman who created the show. It was these people who don't have the real authority over the show, mm-hmm. but they were, but, but they were just given the keys at the time you know to play around with the car and that and it was so it was great to know that because you know that there's people who love storytelling above and beyond the the financial considerations and the financial concerns Mm. um Mm -hmm. and i think that you know when we talked about what we wanted to talk about this is kind of a good segue into our first topic, mm-hmm. which is artificial intelligence and how the specter of AI is potentially going to reshape how stories are told in terms of the entertainment space. Mm-hmm. You know, when, I mean, in, in the film entertainment space, and and you might. Think that's weird that people are. I mean, people have been telling stories a lot longer than it's been filmed on television. Mm-hmm. But the 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 power of the, the 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 mass media machines is that they can tell these stories and get them everywhere on the planet within like a month. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they dominate the airwaves with you know their marketing and and all the outlets are playing this. And everyone is talking about this and the magazine articles just do everything and it's interesting that we're at a point now um and it's and, and it's one of the platforms that the writers guild is striking about is how is ai going to be used in the future for storytelling mm-hmm. and i feel that a lot of writers are scared and they're scared because the computer has the ability to to look at material that's already been written 
and then to come up with a story based upon, you know, like content that's already been devoured by these machines. Mm-hmm. And so, and the and the the problem with that is twofold: is that one, it was multifold, but the two up front is one, the companies don't want to invest in new ideas because they have to pay for that. Whereas if they take ideas that they have already and just continue to expand upon them and they'll use the machine mm. to create to create early drafts and then have skilled, you know, like writers they can trust, you know, to come in and do and to and to do rewrites. That diminishes the storytelling. Because the AI doesn't continue to know and have new experiences. It has, in terms of, it has to be fed information. But it's cheaper to do it that way. And, it, and, and you know, and, and so it's, it's, it's a weird place where you're like, oh, the biggest megaphone for telling the story mm-hmm. doesn't want to have stories that evolve as humanity evolves. Because these things called the large language learning models, they have to be fed stuff that's already been around. Mm-hmm. So when people experience new things and people, you know, that's the new, like, like life is different. Like, for instance, right now, in the last five or ten years, there's been a huge, huge uptick on, you know, um, different types of sexuality, different types of things with the gender, different types of, of, of stories of race. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those stories are only being told now because society is evolving. But if you had the ability to feed in stories from 100 years ago up till 10 years ago and you fed those, and you fed those into the computer, Mm-hmm. And then you were like, well, there's no more because there's been a complaint about you stealing someone else's word. Then you're not going to have stories that have to deal with where we are now because you're stuck showing where, what, you know, like what used to be. And I think that's scary. I, I, I think what happens with storytelling is what people respond to is a very specific story that is so specific mm-hmm. that it become that it becomes universal and that feels like it's under threat i um, i want you to say that again so specific that it becomes universal universal right right i mean i mean if you think about a movie that you love uh-huh you think about a tv show that you love uh-huh there's usually some moment, something about the character, something they do that is so specific to that character, but it reminds you of you, your mother, your sister, your lover, someone in such a way that you're like, oh, someone else has that same problem, and and therefore I feel seen and heard. Oh, that's yeah. so important. I'm sorry to interrupt you. To me, that's that's an aha moment, okay? Yeah, uh, yeah. And and you saying clearly, I mean, I'm getting an understanding of what the fear would be, is always relying on the machine 
to generate already what has been, ignoring what is now. And right. okay, right. all right, that's helpful. Well, well see, now, see now. Also, you know, I, we talked about this just briefly the other day, but it's something that I've been monitoring for the last four or five years. Because mm-hmm. um, because I've been I've been wary of artificial intelligence for a long time in terms of its ability to be deployed in almost any job, and because it's a computer thinking in what way what's it going to do and you know and 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 part of what it is is um um they use artificial intelligence now to do to do facial recognition yeah Mm -hmm. and it's something that i i've noticed there was at least three articles that i've read where google and amazon and microsoft all had these uh, th- there was an ethical dilemma that they were facing early on in this teaching the machine stuff. Mm-hmm. And what they would do is they would hire, I, I find this very fascinating, they would hire women of color to be the supervisors of the ethics of the, of the AI. Hmm. Of, you know, and invariably what would happen is these women would be there, say, at Google for a couple of years and then be doing their research. And when they would present their findings, their findings would typically show that AI, chatbots, all these things are predisposed to have bias against people of color. Oh. And... And then what happened is these women would present these findings, and then they would get fired. <laughs> and then they would become these this hoopla, mm-hmm. and it become a news story because it's like, wait a minute, if you wanted someone to, you know, because they're firing they're firing the, the the person in charge of ethics for the AI, which is a problem in itself. But I always thought it was interesting that that happened to be women of color who were getting hired, and then subsequently fired. And you know, and it makes sense. Because, like, as to why there's a bias, because there's a there's a lack of women and people of color in the computing engineering fields. Gotcha. It's, it's it's so many white men, and their bias is now baked into the DNA mm-hmm. of these systems, and therefore the bias that we know that affects you know all of us. Who are not white men, who, who are not, uh, you know, the heterosexual white male, it's now baked into these computer these computer things that these large companies want to deploy, you know, all over the the world in, in every aspect of society. Well, Chris, and let just, me ask you this: Do you okay? Obviously, uh, uh, men, men. White men historically have power. Okay. So I listened to the story you recounted. And the first thing I thought was it was intended to turn out the way it was with the women appointed to deal with ethics and their findings and then their firing. Because that's also a CYA of the original uh, plan, you know? Yes. Um, So, oh, wow. 
Here we go, Chris. Another whole show. <laughs> I mean, so, so I mean, it, so it's it's something that I see happening, and so I I fear. So in terms of how, how that affects entertainment going forward, yeah, I've already mentioned that there was a story the other day, just came out today. I remember this was two years ago too. Is that Warner Brothers wants to use an AI? Um. A, a it's a it's it's a predictive model system to determine what shows and movies they greenlight, uh-huh. and they're going to say, "Hey, who was the actor that did this?" And he's going to be such and such from what territory, you know, in terms of what money. So, should we invest in this or not invest in this? Now, again, the data they're going to use is data from the vast majority of film history right and we know what that is yeah and we know what that is so there are already so i mean it it doesn't matter if the people who are running are saying we're trying to be you know more inclusive and blah 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 that's fine but you don't have the numbers and the machines don't look at the numbers you're talking about data yeah so uh unless you choose to then x out a certain amount of data but who's going to be in charge of that and, and who's going to be making those choices. So that means that coming out of the strike when these, and who knows if Apple and Amazon are, are already using these machines. They haven't publicly announced it the way that Warner Brothers has. But you have to say to yourself, what does that mean for the type of content that is going to be told? The type, I hate using that word, but the type of stories mm-hmm. that we're going to, be seen that these mega corporations could have their billions of dollars of, of ad dollars to put behind what stories are people going to see, what's going to be on television, what's going to be on your streaming platform. Sure, they're going to have people who are going to make some decisions that are that are going to try to, to, to override the diversity, you know, uh, the, the, the dearth of diversity. But really, is that, but who's going to make be in charge of that we don't know but we do know that the, that the people who are in charge of the diversity programs have been forced out of jobs or they're you know or they've they lost autonomy or there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes not behind these, but below the radar of the mega problem with the strike is they're not being paid they're not being you know they're not they're shot they're being paid in so many different ways and that is true and that is very important and everyone who is a writer who wants to be a writer and to, and to work on the levels as a career as a writer, wants to be able to have a career as a writer and not do it as a hobby. And so, yes, so the money is super important. But beyond the money, there's these other concerns that I, not enough people are really talking about. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people who are talking about it, are they, they're, very com- they're, they're very comfortable with, with their position. They know there'll be a job for them when it comes back. But the most marginalized people, the most on the bubble, as they say, TV parlance, when a show is – they don't know if the ratings are that strong and they're trying to decide if they're going to renew it or not. It's called on the bubble. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's going to predominantly be writers of color. I don't see how it can't be. Um, it's, it's just uh, – there's going to be less – there's less shows. You know, there's, there's less shows. There's less less jobs. And it's a very closed industry already, so it just becomes a lot more tighter. Mm. So that's you know I see what will happen with AI with with the industry. That's not saying that you shouldn't 
try to, you know, fight what's going on. I mean, you have to, I mean, like, we can't give into the machines. We can't give into the computer. We can't give into, you know, the, the select few who have who have the biggest who have the biggest megaphones because there's because the because the computer also gives us the, the ability now to not rely on those outlets as the sole means to put out a message to put out a story to put out a movie to put out a web series that's so my concern it, that's my concern it, it, yeah so it's, it's there's uh, there's optimism i feel it's guarded optimism but it is optimistic because that's the one thing that you know the the one thing that the the, the streamers have they failed to take into account is how social media allows the writers to speak directly to everyone in, in a way they couldn't in the previous strike they don't need the varieties of the high reporters, the LA Times, the New York ah, Times, or, yeah. or, 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 or like whatever it is, to tell our story. We can tell our own story, and the people who are who are writers in Hollywood uh-huh. are the are, are are some of the greatest storytellers on the planet. That's why we, you know, I mean, people who you know, there's a lot of people I know who work in PR and work as, in, in in journalists and stuff like that. Who want to be telling stories in the Hollywood firmament? Because, but it's 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 the it's a it's a high level storytelling skill they haven't quite cracked yet. Okay. So I say yes, but those but but those are the writers who are now your opposition, who are telling you what's wrong. So when the studios hired the crisis PR team, I keep saying to myself, it doesn't matter how good they are. Mm-hmm. They're not better than the, they're not better than the speech writers who who write on the West Wing. They're not better than the right than the writers who wrote on Succession in terms of like trying to tell fast, sharp, quippy stories that have so much emotional resonance. Mm-hmm. And that's where that's where the studios they made a huge blunder, you know, because you know because we are able to say what we want without any kind of you know there's no editorial restraint so if anyone wants to say something really truly bad in terms of like you know like you know they you know they're not out for uh you know if you were at new york times you couldn't say certain things about say bob Iger because he might sue you for libel Mm -hmm. someone on twitter or on instagram to say what they want and if they want to do a rhyming couplet to make him look like a fool they can Mm -hmm. and no one can stop him so there's so this that's why i'm saying there's a there's a sense of the optimism is still available. It's just a little garden. Okay, so, so I'm going to challenge you. Uh, I'm going to put you in a decision-making role. What would be the first okay. couple of things you would do based on the landscape that you just described uh, with the machine uh, become more and more um, related well, to the I'm, dollar? I'm, I'm Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this the thing is, is that, you know, I mean, like, I'm trying to work on, I have three projects that I really want to do. I have one. There's not really a movie like my movie. So if I can get someone who's interested to finance it outside the Hollywood system, because they recognize this is a unique type of story, but it, but, but it has all the things that everyone is familiar with and wants to see in a story. It's just like, oh, you couldn't replicate this story with the computer because who would think to think like this? Okay. That's, you know, so I'm doing that. And that's that's my main 
thing that I want to do is to tell stories that are that the thinking is a little um, it's a little less of center because I feel that's the only way to differentiate yourself. It's the, it's, it's, it's the, you know, what, you, you know, and this is our segue to, to our next point that I want to talk to you about, 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 about the mediocrity in your work and how that works. And I feel like I'm telling a story that you're not able to replicate with the machine, a story that, a, a story that you think you can replicate with a machine or a story that someone who's behind a desk at a corporation is thinking about that they might be interesting because they've seen 20 films like it and the, and, and the algorithm says, we need something like this. Mm. That, you know, smacks of mediocrity because you're not trying to push the envelope. You're not trying to say, how is someone not thinking like this? And that's a, it's a difficult place to be in. You have to be a little delusional to think that way. But, as I was, you know, mentioning, I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but I know we mentioned it just briefly the other day when we we talked about the Pareto principle and talked about mm-hmm. the 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 eighty twenty rule and how many people and for people who don't know the eighty twenty rule is is that eighty percent of your output comes from twenty percent of your input and it's a ratio that an Italian economist discovered in the end of the 19th century and it, re- and it really wasn't publicized until a until an efficiency expert who was an american discovered it pitched it to the to the big three the uh big three detroit was scoffed at and he took it to japan <laughs> and the the japanese were like aha yeah they so did the japanese yeah, sort of how the Japanese became a powerhouse. So they understood, oh, so what? Did, so we need to focus more energy on that twenty percent. Yes, you know, like once you do the thing. But what the it, the mission in the book? There's a book called the the by Richard Koch called the 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 eighty twenty principle. He lets you know that that ratio exists almost everywhere, and you know, and he gives a lot of examples, and I and I rethink about it, and it's 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 kind of true. Uh, you know, they say you know if they say that like if twenty percent of the film studios are, are making eighty percent of the money, mm. that's that's a possibility because if you look at this year's box office, you have Warner Brothers put out Barbie, you had you had Universal put out. Oppenheimer. Yep, those two movies have are, have made two billion dollars. Mm-hmm. of two billion dollars. That is that's probably eighty percent of the of the take of the year. Mm-hmm. Probably going to be you know like, like like just those two movies. If not, you know those studios might have a few more movies coming out this year, or, you know, or already or or later on. Maybe not, but maybe not because of the strike. Which means that it's proven there. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's whatever, there's six companies, eight companies, and you have two that have now, so, so the ratio isn't always 8-20, it's a little sliding, but you see it as a, it's a disproportion, it's a disproportion. So how I think that affects writers, particularly writers of color is, in terms of mediocrity is, 
you have to now say to yourself, I know we've been told for a long time, since I was growing up, you got to be three times as good to be taken, to, to, you know, you do three times the work to be considered half as good. That's right. But now you have to but you have to be, you have to say to yourself, now I gotta really be considered as good. It can't be this half as good thing because that level of like being generous is disappearing because of the contraction in the industry by the AI and by the other kind of bad mistakes they made with invest doubling down in the streaming services and, and all the and the believing that you can make a lot of money from subscriptions when the when the magazine industry and the newspaper industry would tell you a long time ago that you don't make money from subscriptions right. and supplements. You get it from advertising and from buying off the newsstand, not from that. So I, I don't know why those men who are paid multi million dollars didn't realize this. But I feel that now you have to say to yourself, how do you reach that 20%? That's what I I was getting ready to ask you. What would be, obviously, you think about things a lot. But how would... How would you, how would you, how would you make sure or aim to be a part of the 20%? Well... I actually will tell you a story that's briefly about, about my, I'll try to do it quickly, in terms of like how I got into Star Trek. You know, they have, a, for at least 20 years, they had, I think they're all closed down now, or, they're, or, or they've been, they've been, or they've been diminished in power. They used to have these, these diversity programs at all the major networks. Yes. Where, where every year around 500 to 1,000 people would apply for five to ten slots. Yep. And I could not get into those, and I tried probably six times, seven times. I got close twice, really, really close twice. And there's other, there's other factors than just being a really good writer. And what happened? So, but for me, when I got on the Star Trek, I wrote a script that, and I, and, and I didn't apply to the diversity program. Mm-hmm. I was able to meet someone, and then I was able to present myself in a way that made them feel like his background and the way he's talking about storytelling and the way he's talking about how he got into storytelling. Mm-hmm. This is all about, like, every moment that you're interacting with someone, if you're a storyteller, is you demonstrating your ability to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And that's how they're judging you. So then they, when they asked to read my script, I showed them a script that they had never seen before. It was set in a world they had never seen before. But it was universal enough because it was about a family that was struggling. Mm-hmm. It was about a black entrepreneur, which means that it was that it's relatable on that level. But what he was trying to do was not seen before and that is when they were like oh wow Mm. you know what let's ask this guy what else does he have to read let's meet with him see what he's talking about so 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 the so the story so the more behind that is when you're writing stories Mm -hmm. when you're coming up with stories about trying to break into the system you know which everyone is trying to do 
uh, I get all these calls now. You have to say to yourself, I can't tell a story that I think is cool that might be about uh, – you have to think about it and say, is this story that someone might have mentioned to them before or shown them before? Or uh, uh, is it truly unique? Mm. And uh, Because I, another example, a friend of mine is doing a movie – a TV show about Bass Reeves, the, the the black lawman of the West, who was the inspiration for the Lone Ranger. Mm. The, reason why the, the reason why the Lone Ranger's mask is black is because it was a black man who was who who was doing all that stuff, and he had to wear a black mask so people didn't see that he was black. And oh my gosh, I didn't know it, that. It, yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So the thing is. When he told me that, I was like, that sounds really great. I want to see this. I want to see this. I want to see this. Mm. But then I heard, but, but then guess what? Maybe 10 or 15 other black people told me they were writing that story. It hadn't been made yet. And these are other big writers. And I said to myself, that's a story that maybe 20 years ago might have got you traction. But now, how would have seen it enough? These are big writers, and if they've shown it around town and haven't got made and mm-hmm. everything like that, there's nothing. Other people have read it, and it's not. It's, it's and it's not. It's no. It's not new. So that is how you have to think about what do I show you that's about my life that I don't think that anyone would would think is, is new about me or they know about me, and which will lead me into our last uh points which i wanted to because I'm, I'm trying to be mindful of our time is <laughs> to talk about what are you exposing yourself to mm-hmm. how are you like getting yourself out of your comfort zone like a friend of mine told me recently um your life begins where your comfort zone ends mm-hmm. and i was like wow I really get that. It means so much to me. And I feel like part of what you have to do with everything you do to, 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 to be in the 20% is to expose yourself to things that you might not feel comfortable about, that mm-hmm. you might not think is the right thing for you to expose yourself to. You want to do that because it'll open up your worldview. It'll open up how you might see how someone else thinks. It might, it, uh, you, like, you might see a piece of art or something that's culturally relevant that, may, that, that, that turns the key in five other things that you have going on that you didn't see how they're related, but that other piece that's outside of what you do like normally connects it all together. Mm. That is, you know, I mean, I, you know, I mentioned somebody one time that, you know, I, when I was learning, when I was a kid, I was trying to do art. I was trying to be an illustrator, trying to figure out, like, how to draw the human figure. And I, you know, which, and there's, there's a lot of, and, and, I, and I hadn't gone to art school yet. I was maybe, like, 10 or younger than that. <laughs> somebody showed me these underdrawings from the Renaissance. And the underdrawing is what the artist does when he or she is figuring out the painting or figuring out the illustration and it's it's all though it's the it's the it's not the skeleton but it's like it's the the early shapes that he or she uses to fix to draw the full form 
and you and you look at it as just shapes, you know, and, it's, and the human body is really just, or, or or actually you draw anything, and it's just it's it's a combination of three shapes: a sphere, a cube, and a cylinder. Mm-hmm. And once you understand that, you then when you're drawing, you begin to break everything down. But that was shown to me when someone showed me some Renaissance art which I kind of thought was interesting because the, 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 the finished work is this photorealistic art. But it's like, but in your mind, you're like, wow, I can never paint like that. I can never, I mean, how, how do you paint like that? Because you're painting when you're younger and you just see something like by Da Vinci or someone like that or, mm-hmm. or, or Vermeer and you're like, I don't know how, that's just beyond me. But then you see the steps that you're taking and you're like, oh, <laughs> that is the little piece they did. Oh, they did this to get here. Oh, they did this to get here. It's the it's the small. You get the, you break it down to piece by piece by piece, uh-huh. and that comes from from me being curious enough to say, what's some art that really has no relevance to me as someone who's nine or ten? Right. I mean, it doesn't necessarily, you know. But there was a but there was a piece in there that said, ah, here's the key to the rest of it. And once you understand that, then you made the rest of it work. And that's and, and that happens with everything that you do. I mean, I, I don't I don't know how many people that I've met who are black writers and directors, particularly writers, who haven't seen enough of the classic films from old Hollywood or 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 even from the sixties and sixties, seventies and eighties. And why is it important to watch those? Even though they don't have any black curtains in them, is your bosses know those shows? Yes. Your bosses know those movies. Yes. And they're going to reference those all the time. And if you're not familiar with that, then you're not going to be able to let the conversation flow. Like you can't enter the conversation flow because you don't know the reference. And and I just see that as like, oh, you're not exposed to you know, these, these movies that someone else watched and grew up with. And and if that, that person is your boss, it behooves you to know what they know as yes. much as you can so, yes. so you can be part of the flow. Yes. You know, and it's easy, at, it's easy at a law firm or easy at a business because, you know, like the law firm, they teach you the, the, the law schools are, are going to teach you their cases for tort law and blah, 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 and the murder cases, blah, blah, blah. And, this, and everyone probably learns the same murder cases. But the the art world is different because everyone is growing up differently at different times. But the people who are eventually going to employ you have a set of movies that spoke to them so much, and they talk about them a lot. And so it's up to you to kind of know that. And then not and you know and 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 then when you know that, well then you can add in to the conversation the stuff they haven't seen. And then you look like you're really deep into it, and they go, "Wow, we need to, we need to learn from him. We got to learn from her because he, you know." So it's it's reciprocity that helps you by, and that's the exposure will also help you expose someone else to something that they don't know about that that that's from you. So, and that's exactly that, what you have done today. I just want I'm yeah. I'm putting that pitch in for you, okay? Yeah, I have four. Yeah. I have four pages of notes. Uh, <laughs> I do. I, I, I'm not kidding you. Uh, and you remember I said in my intro, aha moments. Uh, yeah. 
you provided for me, and I suspect for people listening, some glue in areas we didn't think about, even in AI. You know, forget the the machine taking over the world. What are the implications for someone, for instance, that is trying to break into a world uh, with new ideas, different ideas, ideas that maybe the world hasn't experienced yet, but they're in their head. It doesn't fit. Right. In, it doesn't fit into the compute computer algorithm. You know what? What happens to those people? Um, I love the idea of making sure you're exposing yourself outside of your comfort zone and to things that you may not have exposed yourself to before, because that's a grounding. That's a no. What it is is a door that you open, that you can yes. walk through and connect. And I love that. Uh, but oh my goodness, I. I Oh, I had all these notes, and they're not organized, so I won't even go into that. Uh, Chris, do you want to read your letter for me, please? Yes, I have the letter. Chris, Chris wrote this letter last time, and I was so impressed I asked him to read it again. So please do. So, Chris, your childhood trauma is going to define you, but don't let it limit you. It won't be easy, but each time you identify and shake Oh, and then shake off one of those self-limiting beliefs, you will take one step closer to the ideal version of you. That's the path that you want to be on. It will never end, and it will be a bumpy road, but, but, but you have the means to make the journey, a journey where if you bring your passion, learn from your experiences, and deploy your unique way of thinking, you will find joy where you least expect it. Mm. Take joy in whatever shape, size, or form it comes in. It will nourish you. Uh, you first need to embrace your greatest gifts. You will wonder what those are, and for far too long, you will shy away from the one primary gift people recognize when encountering you. It makes you different. It makes you stand out. But that's the point in life. You will suffer longer than necessary whenever you try to downplay it. And whenever you do, you will deny a core element of who you are. Standing out at first will appear as though you are standing apart. They're not quite the same thing. What you won't know most of the time is that there are more outsiders than you can imagine who will welcome you into the fold. Mm. Look a little further. Open the next door. Talk more. Your voice is your superpower. Written and spoken. This is another one of your gifts that you don't embrace. It's that childhood trauma rearing its head again. Brush it back as soon as possible. Otherwise, time will go by, and time is a zero-sum game. It's the only thing you can't get back. Money, possession, jobs, friends, lovers, trips, family, they will come and go. But only time goes. You will yearn to be an individual. Embrace this with all your heart. Take actions that will satisfy your soul. This will allow you to step into the arena, survive, and thrive. Teddy Roosevelt's quote about the man in the arena is going to be one of your beacons. Take this one to heart. It will give you courage in the face of any danger. And a woman will, she will enter your life through one of your low points. She's going to believe in you like no one else has before or since. She's going to love you, and you're not going to recognize it. So you're not going to do the things to treat her right. And you're not going to give her the few things she asked for. So you're going to lose her. And it's going to hurt for a long time. Because her love and her desire for your genuine happiness is unfamiliar. 
uh, now on the other side of that path is the best years of your life. Losing her will force you to confront the demons that choke you at night. Losing her will force you to treat every other woman who reaches your life with more compassion and more clarity. I can't say if you reconnect with this woman, you might not need to. Be thankful she came into your life and changed its trajectory. In the wake of her absence, you will strive to become a better man. A man who is more giving, a man who respects his life more. A man who respects everyone whose life you touch and whose life touches yours. My final thoughts are, spend more time with friends. Spend more time bringing joy into other people's worlds. It's an investment that pays compound interest and dividends. Your future will continue to be bright as long as you believe in yourself and believe in your gifts. A warm hug from the future. Christopher Derrick lives with a gift that helps open doors to our imaginations. His gifts excite, entertain, educate, and empower. His journey is evidence that he has said yes to the power within him. And Chris, you got to come back. There's so much more we haven't touched on. But this is Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. on Radio Fairfax in Virginia. Remember, you are stronger than you feel, smarter than you think, more beautiful than you know, and more loved than you can ever imagine. Treat yourself like someone you love. This is Tyra G. Until the next time, I'm listening. <laughs>